0: You know, this I think this podcast is a little different because. Uh, not that there's not formalities in it, but. It's different because I, I'm trying to figure out the best tactics as an interviewer on how to people how to keep people engaged. In this whole thing, that's cattle, because mm-hmm. most people be like, that's boring. I don't want to hear about that, but you're a Navy SEAL. So that kind of sells it, kind of. Sure, right? sure. Or at least for a part of our demographic. Yeah. Maybe 1%.
1: At least they might listen for a few minutes extra in case yes. you throw some like SEAL stories in there too. Yeah,
0: so we'll, we'll, I kind of want to like, well, hybrid a little bit of SEAL, a little bit of cattle and a little bit of SEAL.
1: That's perfect.
0: Um, how, when did you join, what's your Navy journey? How did you get in the Navy? How did you join? The so
1: kind of I had same? an uncle who was a SEAL that was like somebody I always, just had looked up to as a kid and was a just an influence. Uh, after he'd gone out, he lived in Alaska and I used to go up there and like, you know, when I was younger and then I spent summers up there with him. And he kind of planted the seed when I was a senior in high school. He took me to his, I want to say it was his 20th class reunion in Virginia Beach. Hmm. And I was like 18 year old kid and uh, went down there and just,
0: you know, Hung out with a bunch of seeds. Hung
1: out with a bunch of seeds. These were like, I was an 18-year-old kid and these were, these were men, you yeah. know? And I was like, this is a different level of, uh. and, but, you know, so they did, you know, you've been to those types of things where they've got guys jumping out of planes and sniper shots and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm gonna do that, you know, at some point. And, um, and so I went to college before that and just something that like kind of the seed was already planted Mm -hmm. and when i was in college i started working kind of in the outdoor industry and i was guiding and doing different stuff and coming out here and when i graduated i was like oh i'll do that for like one more summer and kind of get ready and then i ended up doing it for like three years um just because it was like going really good it was fun and um but kind of that desire of of wanting, and that would have been like in uh, i graduated college in 2005 um and then i joined the navy in 2008 and so, like, I had a bunch of buddies that were in the military, like deploying all the time, and it was just something I like really wanted to do. Um, like, my dad had been in New York, like on nine eleven, and like all that stuff. I think that most veterans of like our, you know, you got in obviously before I did, but most people from that time frame, just those feelings and and the fact that there was two like major wars going on um, at the time. And so, yeah, I got to the point where I was like, hey, I'm going to do this thing and um, started preparing to do that. We were living in North Idaho at the time and enlisted up there. And, uh, yeah, and then went, went, to, went to Bud's directly after boot camp and fortunately like, made it through that. Um, got rolled once uh, for an injury in Hell Week, and then after that um, – you know, graduated with the next class, and then I went to S V Team One in Hawaii um, for my first command. You, you, um, where'd you grow up at and where'd you go to college? Mm-hmm. Uh, I started my life, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and then I went to college in West Virginia. Mm. Um, and then during those summers, I was like, I had a cousin who went to school in Missoula. So I used to always come out and like, I always had a place to stay, and I was already doing some guiding and stuff. And so I was able to kind of, transition that out to Montana. And that's what brought us out here originally. And then like probably a week after I graduated college, we packed up and moved out full time.
0: So you, when you went to, uh, can you explain to people what SDV is?
1: Sure, so SDV is Sealed Delivery Vehicles. Um, Affectionately, we refer to it as like the mini sub. Um, So it's a literally a mini submarine. It's a wet submersible that, you can launch and recover from larger, you know, nuclear submarines and smaller um, craft. And being that it's a wet submersible, you're basically breathing off of some sort of breathing apparatus, but it's a flooded vehicle that is used for insert and next sort of, you know, out of different places and um, super clandestine. And basically it's one of those deals where you could, you know, you could launch from a regular submarine, um, could go underwater in Virginia, and you wouldn't poke your head back out of the surface until you were basically on the beach of another country with zero detectability.
0: It makes me nauseous just thinking about that. That's yeah. like, oh God. <laughs> we live co- underwater, we deploy un- underwater like we're snorkels, like the cartoon snorkel. That's an old,
1: that's yeah. old thing. It's well, that's crazy. what it would be though. You would be in this, like, I mean, the worst, the worst situation would be you gotta ride the sub someplace only then to launch into the mini sub. so. You go for, like, when they shut the hatch to so the next time your, your little bean's above, uh, above the water, you know, it could be, that could be a long time.
0: What's the like, longest trip you've done underwater and then deploying SDV and doing all that stuff?
1: I did, um, I didn't have any, any nearly as long as some other people. There was people that were on there for months and then they were, they were doing different things. I've done it, though, where I've started the day, like, on the sub and have done almost 14 hours wet like on on some sort of scuba because you you got to come off the the sub and so the minute you actually come out of the um you basically lock out that thing floods up and then you're on some sort of breathing apparatus whether it's connected to the submarine or to the mini sub or to some sort of personal apparatus
0: in 14 hours constant breathing off and underwater
1: yep yep i mean some of that was sitting there waiting for them to launch it because like if something breaks and you're literally just sitting in the back of this thing um and there's nothing to do like there's there's i can't get into like all like how they do the comms but there's Generally, there's no voice comms because nobody wants to hear anybody else complaining from the back of the boat <laughs> when they're driving. Like, where are we? We were supposed to be there hours ago. Um, and so, there's no, there's no comms at all. It's, so for hours, you're uh, just hanging out. It's pitch out. black. You're by yourself, just with your own thoughts. Pitch black. Pit, it's as black. You can't see anything. The goal is to sit as still as possible so that you don't get your buddies like next to you don't get like annoyed that you're over there like wiggling around so especially as a new guy like you're expected just to sit and you squeeze each other every so often to make sure that everybody's you know okay and you can't tell jokes you can't tell jokes you can't can't make fart noises no nothing it's the worst platform and you're stuck with yourself alone for hours and like you will find out like just how weird you are when you're sitting there with nothing to do, trapped with your own thoughts. And like, that's why I think I can't shut up is because I don't like to sit quietly by myself that's crazy for any amount of time because- <laughs> I, Do you I,
0: get those feelings? What is it called? That euphoric feeling? Like uh, those pulls where it's like weightless?
1: No, and- because you're, it's not very, it's not an enjoyable experience. Generally you have like, you'll have a pretty heavy weight belt on to keep your butt on the seat, so you're not like floating up. But if you lose your weight belt or something, you're literally like, there's no way to control your buoyancy. So you're basically just like bobbing up and down.
0: Oh, what position? Are are you in a seated position? Like a car? you're
1: in like a a seated position, but like not the butt. Oh. So you're basically sitting on, like if, so you'd have guys, and you basically would have somebody in the back of you, and then somebody would basically sit like on their lap, and that person was the only per- access to the door. So once you were in that thing, and they would sometimes there was no space in there. So the pilot would have to come and literally like shove you in and then shut the door. And so, however, you were in is how you were sitting for the next. There was no adjusting. There was no, um, you know, like if you're on land, right? And you start getting a little cold, what do you do? You
0: get, you get warm, yeah, get a puff.
1: It. Yeah. Yeah. Pull all your puff out, get your hat. You know, warm up. Yeah, That thing, the minute you started getting cold, it was like, you better stand by because it's only going to get colder. And when they tell you in training, you'll be colder and more miserable outside of BUDS than you will, uh, they were accurate. And if you made an SDV, you know, ride in evolution at BUDS, I think you'd get a lot of quitters. <laughs> really oh yeah i have buddies who are like legit seal team guys that are like i i would have never been able i got panic full panic attack not getting in that thing um and and it was a great command it was a you know it was a it was a really great command to be at i learned a ton as a new guy you know it was a tough command to go to when just because the mission set was different when all your buddies are deploying into active combat zones but the the, the work that we did there was super rewarding, but also I think it developed really good habits for future stuff because you had to be like super organized. You really had to go from like your own little nightmare to then getting out of that thing and mentally make the switch to like, it's time to get to work.
0: Oh God, cause I forget. It's like, that's your infiltration platform. Yeah, It hasn't even began. You
1: haven't even started and you could be, I mean, you could be in that thing six, eight hours. So by the time you get out of it, you're already dehydrated you know, you start adding different, different um, like, you know, it's, it's not like you're sitting there snacking and you're not incredibly combat effective, but you also have to go from this, like, mental state of just absolute boredom and misery to, to now it's, like, time to lock it in and get to work. Uh, so I think it honestly develops really good operators because you have to just be super detail-oriented and focused on kind of good, good systems in that all your stuff had to be dry bagged. You know, if you're carrying certain equipment and that bag flooded out, I mean, it could ruin the whole op for everybody else. I mean, you're working a lot of the time, you know, in the dark and you just had to be really systematic. And I think that carried over into other types of operations. And, and generally you would see the, the folks that did really well there went on to have, you know, really good careers, whether it was within the, that command or, or beyond.
0: I think all the guys I served with in the agency were SDV guys at some point. Um, I don't know their names because they're all called call signs. We didn't have real names. It's so weird. Um, it's interesting because now we're in a cabin in Montana and you're as far away from SDV as you could possibly be. Almost like you purposely and intentionally designed a life to get as far away from the water on a horse in the middle of a landlocked state.
1: Yes. With no ocean around to spend any amount of time under uh, or on, which has, I still like to go to the ocean occasionally, but like if you said to me right now, like, you know, we should go scuba diving. She
0: put a pot, like we should put an SDV craft. on. Yeah, no, we would be good. (laughs) Do laps.
1: Yeah. I don't think I'd be down to, um, at this point I've, I've done enough uh undersea time for for my. I've checked that box. I'm ready to I And there's only that. a handful of guys that, you know, like Trevor was actually there at the same time I was and um there was great people there at the time that I was there and I think just the reputation of guys that came out of that command, they used to actually not have a great reputation and then I think over time it's actually gotten way better because more folks have been like exposed to that. That never went because that's a it's a it's its own own team. Yeah. So if you didn't go to that team, you really wouldn't like if you don't have that qualification, they're not just going to pop you in there. But then more command started actually like coming through there and people started realizing just how hard that that environment is to work out of. And and then I think we had some great leadership come in during the time that I was there. And I think those folks also started to, to kind of relay back like, hey, there's some really good people that are coming out of this thing and these guys are, are good operators. And um, and I know some really, really good guys that have, you know, come out of there and then went on to different JSOC commands or agency jobs or, um, but that foundation, I mean, that is a hard environment to be in just because you drop you know, you drop the screwdriver and there's no, hey, we'll just go grab another one. You can't even tell anybody you dropped it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you're, crazy. You tried to communicate and, um, but yeah, it was, I was actually, like I said, when I first went there, I was a little like, probably wouldn't have been my first choice. And, um, but when I left there, I was really, it was really valuable um, experience and I definitely wouldn't have changed it looking back. But at the time, um, I, like I said, I, it would not have been my first. And there was guys who chose to go there, but I was not one of them.
0: So what do you what do you do now? Like, what's your what's your title position? So duties and responsibilities.
1: Sure. Um, so I'm the president of Little Belt Cattle Company, which is a first generation uh, cattle ranch in central Montana. And we're here at the ranch now. And um, a good friend of mine and business partner and former seal um had this idea around 2020 and we're in a position where um you know had some things go our way that that allowed that door to kind of open and we decided we were gonna gonna go for it and start a cattle ranch and that's what we did so I run the day-to-day operations um you know we're kind of up and running at this point but in the beginning it was also um my business partner kind of found some areas that we really wanted to focus on. And then once we kind of locked in on, on where we're currently at, um, you know, I was, I was responsible for helping get all the kind of real estate deals put together, you know, kind of all the subsequent stuff and then putting together the cattle operation from, from scratch. The first 350 cows that we had on site that first fall, I mean, I, Bought all those, branded every one of them myself. And at first it was just Tim and I here and we didn't entirely know what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, we just got to it. And we've built that now into, a, you know, a pretty decent sized operation. We're continuing to grow and we've built a number of businesses kind of like off of, of the foundation of the ranch. And so, yeah, so I kind of run the, we've got a, a couple of employees now that, that do different things and kind of run different, you know, from our farming operations to our cattle operations. And then I kind of oversee all of that stuff. And then any of the other businesses that are related to directly to the foundation of the ranch,
0: you you don't hear that often first generation cattle rancher. But I think it's cool because I think, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the the guy who started the Yellowstone series, one of the reasons it's so popular is because one of the characters, the main character's uh, son, is a Navy seal. And when you look at special operations veterans doing all the stuff they're doing. Um, you're really taking guys with profound over an extended period of time. This isn't like, I would say World War, World War Two, four year war, where it was a compressed timeline, extreme chaos, extreme circumstances, but a compressed timeline. Yeah, guys who served a decade in the global war on terror, it's a lot of lessons learned, a lot of analytical processing of information, planning, contingency mindsets, uh, where they're not just planning for everything to go right, and very adaptable, very resilient people coming into industries like cattle ranching, like survival and tactical, and changing the way, pioneering the way that things are done. And it's like, I can imagine, based on the, the morning we spent on horses, talking about the business and everything that you've done, I imagine you've been shaking some trees around here. And, and good, bad, or indifferent, it's definitely different for a lot of people, especially for coming from a legacy tradition that's an American tradition, which is cattle ranching. So one of the purposes of educating you guys, as I'm talking about this with Greg, is to give you guys perspective on what it takes to ranch in America, run cattle, and then how that right now could be a profound issue for our country moving forward if we don't have the right resilient diversification and plans in place or even people in place that are doing it right. Because if we just keep to the same patterns, same recipe, it could be a recipe for disaster. Um, and we could fail, uh, whether it's supply chain recession or compounding things. What does it take to be a cattle rancher in America? I mean, as a first generation cattle rancher, and you coming into this, what does it take to to run day to day?
1: Yeah, and and I think again, like to your point, you know, I think COVID, that time frame really highlighted some of the cracks in the food system that we all it's an incredible system though it's a system i think a lot of americans have begun to take for granted and i know like friends of mine that you know live in different urban areas all across the country were really terrified and they were like i can't go down to the grocery store and get food and and i think you're seeing that now in in a variety of things i mean baby formula baby all all these and you know like i was making a joke at the time but i was being serious like if you didn't worry about how you wiped your ass and you had a freezer full of meat you weren't too worried about it right mm. but if you couldn't go and get that and you couldn't get it from a system that has been almost 100% reliable for a very long time and I think it's almost developed like a lot of complacency mm. in folks because for sure it's like hey I go down there I get it and and there's not a lot of thought put into well what if there was a disruption in that system and we started really looking at this Uh, i've been a lifelong hunter and we we knew other ranchers and things and you know if you could if you could access food from them and high quality food for your family and for your community i mean that's kind of where we like came up with the just the idea for it but we really started looking at this food system and and saying like where is this going in the future and who are going to be the people that are ultimately doing that And frankly, I see it almost as a matter of national security, because if you can control your own food system and you're not importing tons of food from other countries, you really your ability to sustain and survive is huge. And so I'd say, you know, for counterintuitive from an operational perspective, definitely changes throughout. There's kind of a cycle to it that's based on a number of things. So right now we're kind of in the, the cycle of, we run what we call like cow-calf pairs, so cows that have calves, and then kind of the next age class up from that, which you would call a yearling. And, you know, right now, basically we are moving those cattle through, moving them from kind of our, our spring program into the summer, which primarily is getting them on the right pastures at the right time for the right amount of time, To where they're meeting all of their nutritional values and growing and ultimately kind of working through that life cycle of the season for that cow and for those animals. And those, just like humans, those nutritional values and things change. Um, And it's also kind of working with potential problems. Like for us, we run like a pretty specific genetics program with our herds of cattle. So we don't want neighbors' bulls coming in because that frankly, is like a disruption to our business. And and there's a number of issues with it. So even where those cattle are in relation to other people. And, you know, so those daily operations is really, it's just like the military in that you develop a good plan and you start executing that plan. But you also have to recognize when like the tide has kind of turned against you or is shifting and you have to make corrections to the plan. And this spring, just from weather and a number of you know, just circumstances outside of our control have shifted that and it's one of those things. It's just like the military, like you sit there and you make these like detailed plan down to the, you know, the sandbox and, you're, and then the minute you step off and something doesn't go your way and all of a sudden you're reworking. Now that plan is not bad because you have the plan, you know how to flex within it, but that is like very conducive to this business in that things change and they change quickly And you're also dealing with live animals. Mm. And it's not one of those things where you can go like, oh, we have a problem and they're getting into this toxic plant that is poisonous. Well, we'll take care of it next week because they'll die on you. Mm. And it's not like another business where you just go like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, my stock market account just died. But that's how this is. So, you know, we do everything we possibly can to provide the highest level of care for the animals that are under our care and that's very much how we look at at it and we want to be very open and honest and transparent about not only where your food comes from but who it comes from and we're really proud of the fact that we're a veteran owned and operated company and a first generation i actually had somebody one time when we we made these (laughs) these t-shirts just for like friends and family and whatever and then and and it says on there established 2020, and a person that I know, who's part of a multi generational ranch, um, but doesn't ranch themselves any longer, said why would anybody put 2020 on there like, like, it was embarrassing, and I was like because we're we're prouder than hell about the fact that we started this, in 2020, we're proud to be first generation, and we're proud to take kind of the opportunities that that's what America's about, right? You know, you go and you fight for this country, you fight for the freedoms for everybody to have opportunity, and- You're building your own opportunity. And then you build your own opportunity, right? And when you get out all that hard work that you put in to feel like you're getting some of that benefit back, and from the guys that are still doing it, um, you know, and, and, and a big thing for me with this whole thing was also, you know, for friends that, don't have those opportunities anymore because they didn't make it back. Mm-hmm. And are you doing things that are like making the world a better place, right? Are you doing things that those buddies would walk in the door and go, "This is cool"? Or how would how cool would it be to take them out and show them where they don't have that time anymore? And so, you know, as Tim and I were looking at these different businesses that I think we're attracted to, it's it's those things that really do add added value mm. beyond yourself and like back into the community and kind of for like the, the greater good. And that's something for us that has been really rewarding. And like, it took some time to kind of refine that purpose. You know how, like when you got out, you know, it takes, it's not an easy problem. Like yeah. when you got out, how many years were you in before you got out?
0: Uh, 20 total, Twenty to- So yeah, 18 active and then two years in the reserve.
1: Component. Yeah. But like when you get out, I mean, that transit, I totally wrote off how, I thought I was gonna be. I was like, "Oh, I've done this. I've done that. This is gonna be like the easiest thing ever," and it wasn't. It's hard. It was super hard. Like, I mean, what was your transition
0: like? Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, getting out. I, luckily, I had the CIA, so I transitioned into that job. But even the six months, I mean, I was a, I was a senior, master sergeant, in in special forces, and then, um, went from like being a senior E eight to going into the reserve com- component and made Sergeant Major, but I was living in an apartment on an air mattress because I was waiting for six months. I was like, I don't have a job. Sure. And then the, finally the CIA picked me up and in that six month period of having nothing, I was like, I might as well be a private in the 82nd Airborne Division. Yep. Um, and then I was able to tr- you know, transition to that, but even transitioning from CIA and then separating and giving up my Sergeant Major job and starting field craft.
1: Do like, you feel like crap. that was like, really your transition point when you left the CIA? Because it's pretty similar, yeah, for right? sure. Same type of guy, same job. Yeah. Did you have that moment though of like, what am I going to do now?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I, even starting Philcraft from the ground up, I was in Pakistan at the time with the agency and came back and was like, oh, I'll start this thing. And we had talked about it on the horses. A lot of people think because they were an operator, or I was a sniper, or I was a spe- special forces sergeant major. That's a big deal. The civilian world, nobody gives a shit. It, it will get you a couple likes. Yep. It'll, get, it'll get you a little bit of amplification in what you're saying. But at the end of the day, you're starting from zero.
1: Yeah, I tell people it'll get you on, like it'll get your resume on on the on the stack. Yeah, and maybe on, on the side of the stack that you wouldn't have been on otherwise. Yeah, but there's still the point where those people. Get beyond that, pre- like it gets you to the stack, but then you got to go in there and perform. Yeah, and then it's hard because you've done all these like really incredible things, and you've done them at this like super high level. And people, I think they do appreciate it, but then they like then it becomes like in business. Well, how does this ultimately kind of affect my bottom line? Mm-hmm. And you can be the greatest operator in the world, but if you're working at a tech company, your ability to shoot bad guys, you know, better than anybody else, probably doesn't apply anymore.
0: Doesn't and
1: yeah. And I think it's hard, I think a lot of people don't realize how challenging it is when you come from that, because your buddies all understand it, your military buddies are like, man, to be a master sergeant, or to be this, or to be at these different units, we all know what that means, Yeah. but, you know, there's a 99%, there's a lot of people out there that if you said, you know, oh, I thought Green Berets were like a different type of seal or vice versa, yeah. and, and that's okay because that you know Tim and I were both you know kind of under the the mindset of I always wanted to be in a SEAL it's something I'm extremely proud of and and it was an unbelievable time in my life with like some of the best people I'll ever get to work with but I didn't want that to be the top rung in my life yeah I wanted it to be a rung on the ladder oh, with multiple sure. especially after I got out and one of the things we were talking about today like I really love seeing you know you see other veterans that come from you know similar backgrounds or different backgrounds, but out there really setting a great example and really doing great things and like making their communities better, starting businesses, mm-hmm. partnering with, with people in business and really bringing all that experience and all those lessons learned into different industries. And I think it brings like a ton of improvement uh, because those are lessons you just don't get, right? You earn those and to be able to reapply those into other areas You know, I I think the same folks that are very successful in those fields, you know, that we came out of in those units we came out of go into other things. But then you see these guys where you're like, these are some of the most talented people I know from those communities and they can't, or maybe they, I shouldn't say can't, they haven't found that next Mm -hmm. right fit. And I know for me, like it took some time, but just the, the parallels between production agriculture and military operations. Have I could go on and on and on about those parallels and just what a good fit it's been for me and why I honestly think it's a really good industry for people to look at. And it's not an industry that was even brought up to me when I was getting out. Nobody said, oh, you should go look into this. Um, It's something I kind of was able to put develop in. in Something we're working on is trying to get more people to explore this. Cause there's, I mean, it's a massive industry from, I mean, you could be at a, a guy at corporate John Deere down to a, a cowboy out of place if you wanted it, and everything in between. And I think it's it's just the people, there's just a lot of parallels there that, you know, I see on a daily basis and is something that has helped us. As you were saying, kind of being new is is bringing those experiences. And a lot of people like, I mean, we were talking about this before. Like, how many people would you start telling them like, hey, I'm gonna be a Green Beret, gave you negative feedback.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they're like I mean, it's it's 100% true. It's like that space. Well, we had talked about it, like how many people want to be cowboys, but they're not willing to cowboy. Yeah, actual do the actual work. Yeah,
1: you know, Oh, I can't tell you. I mean, like, it's like, oh, they'll go up there for like the picture. But what the picture doesn't show is the like support person that basically had to pony them up there. But meanwhile, they're sitting there like they're doing it. And it's similar to the military and similar to the special operations. I mean, there's plenty of people that think they want to do that job or they want to go to the bar and and tell people that that's what they do or whatever but when it comes down to actually doing it and the first time you gotta go and do that job for real they don't want anything to do with it and mm-hmm. then you have people and i feel like this is how i was a little bit like i really wanted to be a seal because i wanted to do that job at that level mm-hmm. i wanted to be that it's the kind of soldier i really wanted to be those are like. You know, but I was more focused on doing the job than I was on just making it through a selection course. Yeah. And I think it's just funny because you see people and then they go like, well, I didn't know we were gonna ride that much. And you're like, well, yeah, that's how we get around. And all of a sudden it's not as fun on, you know, day 100 mm-hmm. as it looked like on day one.
0: Well, is that the, you think that's a, well, I think culturally it's a problem. I mean, I, I experienced personally, that problem where people around me and people from my past, they want the yard pony, they wanna make the perception to the world seem like that's what they do for real. It's like like you said, the guy guy wearing the beret, like you wanna wear the beret, but do you wanna earn and do that job professionally? Yep. So it's like out here, if you're just using horses, which you explained to me, which I think is fascinating, we'll talk about that in a bit, but running the cattle, and you're just using that horse to to corral and to wrangle and to do all the things all the work like that's 12 hours a day seven days a week do you want to do that and most people who come into it are like yeah i want to do this and they take the pictures for the gram and do all the things but they're not willing to commit to it and i experience it in entrepreneurship because people are like i want to be as successful as you okay do you you want to not have a life personally because that's what i i don't have that yep and do you want to grind every day because I don't have days off. Like, I I work every single day. And do you want to do that for seven years? Because I've been doing it for seven years. Like, come see me in seven years and then have that conversation with me. And most people, they want the temporary perception, but they don't want to actually do the hard work.
1: No, and you're absolutely right. And same thing with this, you know, with, and you know it's like when you're starting a business, you're like truly the point of you know continuity or consistency that has to do it, and it doesn't matter what day it, and that's why actually again, like parallels to the military here, you know something has to get done and you go, oh yeah, I wanted to you know go do th- this with my kids or I wanted to do this on this morning I mean Father's day, we had to go out and move you know a pile of cattle because they needed to be moved the pasture they were in they basically the feed was getting close to you know where it needed to be grazed to, and there's no Hey, we'll just do it on Wednesday or whatever the case may be. But a lot of people, you know, they think they want to do that. It's it's very similar selection type courses where there's a lot of people who think they want to do it and then they get there and they go, oh, this, this is every day. This is, you know, th- to be successful doesn't mean you get to do it for two years and then go, Ah, eh, I'll take a little bit of a break. It's doing it for seven years. It's doing it for, t- and it's doing it until you get it to where you want it to be. And then I think you're right. A lot, a lot of people wanna say, oh, I wanna do that uh, up until they start doing it and realize that's hard.
0: Yeah, it's tough. Yep. One of the things uh, I enjoy, like I've enjoyed courtesy of my position in, in the job that I'm doing, which is providing the education and kind of people's understanding of this kind of stuff is the whole process of cattle ranching from the beginning to where it's on your plate can you describe what that process is and your segment of the process but also beyond
1: sure absolutely so generally in cattle ranching i would almost call it kind of a phased industry and at each phase line somebody's kind of passing the ball to somebody else and so on the most basic level you have a herd of cows and those cows get exposed to bulls at a certain time of year, which sets you up for when your calving is going to be, which is when those cows are gonna basically have calves. And generally you wanna keep that somewhere between like 45 and 60 days. And for us, we shift that more into the springtime, kind of like the same way Elk and bison and, and wild animals, the time frames that they have. So we have actually moved our calving and, and we start that process about April 15th. And then you basically are there throughout that whole process of all those cows giving birth, which that can be a very busy time of year because you know there's complications, there's times where, you know, you might have like an orphan calf for some reason, and there's all sorts of things that you're doing. On a daily basis to to keep those cattle healthy and i mean for us this year we had a big snowstorm come in right when we started calving and my wife my family we have like a camper you know that we camp out of and stuff and we have nothing out on the the range where we were calving and so i drove the, the camper out there and that's what we worked out of for a week but we would have calves in the shower like not with the water on obviously but they'd be in towels and we had multiple calves sleeping in the camper overnight when it's negative 20 to keep them warm and you're Being giving bottles you're coming out you're trying to get them like back with their mom because there's a time frame there where they basically are like oh I don't have a baby anymore. And so there's a lot of work that can go into that and then you basically raise you know those calves up until a certain usually it's kind of a weight based but it's a time based thing that would take you kind of into the fall and then those calves would either get sold or they would go to what would be called a backgrounding yard. And it's basically taking those calves, the best way I could describe it is kind of through puberty. It's like pretty awkward time in their life. They're coming off the mom and then they're going, um, they're learning how to live on their own, right? So, So no more, you know, no more milk for mom, now it's grass and water. And they're basically learning how to do that both outside as well as in a feed yard. And they'll stay within that backgrounding stage for about 75 days. And then they would come out of that, and once they come out of that, they're pretty stable. You know, that's about the time frame where you'd, you'd start kind of calling those a yearling, and, and then as a yearling, those steers would generally continue to whether they went back to like a grass feed situation before they went to another feed yard to be finished, and then they would go into a processing plant and transition from you know livestock to beef or dead stock if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> The heifer calves, the female calves, could follow the same path as those steers would, or that's what you would use to replace animals that leave your herd, or to build and grow your herd uh, moving forward. And so those you kind of have some options there on, on how you best utilize those. And again, those, those could just basically become more reproductive cattle within your, your herd. You know, or they could, they could go in that same direction of the steers if that's what, you know, it's just kind of where you're at and what you're trying to do. Most operations, I would say, you traditionally would hear like, hey, we're a cow-calf operation. We're a yearling operation. We're a feedlot that does backgrounding. We're a feedlot that does finishing. We're trying to get to the point. Right now, our cow-calf operation, we also run yearlings and we work with a partner um, south of Billings, Montana that has a backgrounding yard as well as that can do some finishing stuff. And we're trying to get to the point where we're developing a sustainable supply chain within our businesses of livestock that would be able to go through all those phases while we still retain ownership of those cattle so that we're basically trying to capture margin along the way instead of selling those as like a calf at phase line one, they get resold at phase line two. We're actually trying to keep all of that. And that allows us to basically control the care of those animals throughout that entire process. And then those at the time of processing, we develop cattle for two pretty high quality marketed programs, um, a Wegu program out of Seattle called Mishima Reserve. And then our Angus stuff generally goes into certified Angus beef. And then we also hold back some of that stuff that we use for our own kind of direct-to-consumer stuff um, that we're doing here locally within our communities of montana
0: what's the lifespan of a cow in this type of ranch setting from calf to processed beef
1: yeah so it's about um for those ones that are basically going to a finishing yard you're somewhere around i'd call it 18 months at the very very soonest i i would say 20 months is about right um if you're a grass fed grass finish operation you might be somewhere 26 months something like that because it takes longer to finish them on grass Mm. Um, but you're looking at you know that that calf first couple months and then they go through that background process and then generally to finish those cattle you're looking at about 200 days to where you would you would take them as like a finished or fat cow is what they would call it Mm -hmm. and that's what we're all used to you know getting at you know you go to a nice restaurant and get a good steak prime quality that's going to be kind of that 20 ish, 20, 22 month, you know, so it's a pretty long process that I think a lot of people, I know I didn't appreciate it before I started doing this, just how much time and effort it takes to go from like a calf hitting a ground to a high quality piece of protein hitting your plate. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And it's also very capital intensive, like all along those ways, because, you know, you're feeding those. And that's why it's segmented. I think industry wide is because it's hard to pay for all that feed all the way along that entire process. And that's something that we've kind of worked through over time and and are continuing to develop. We're we're not there yet. We're getting there and with some partners that we're working with, you know, but our goal is to really get a Montana grown supply chain that is Montana born, raised, and fed here in the state, instead of shipping those to different places where, you know, they would traditionally feed more cattle than they do here.
0: How does it work when um like most people who understand the cattle space at this level look at it and the numbers are wonky it just doesn't make sense financially as a business we had talked about it it's, it seems like a failed business plan and there's a lot of subsidizing that goes goes on but there's also reasons why it's mm-hmm. kind of the way it is what's the start point for how much does a does a cow cost or a calf cost and how much do you sell it for and then who are you selling it to?
1: Sure. Yeah, so I, I think like anything, right? Like to be perfectly honest, I think any entrepreneurial effort takes some subsidizing, but generally it's through your own effort, right? So you go, hey, I've got Fieldcraft, our primary focus is this type of training, but I'm gonna bring in a leadership dinner on this month to help. And it's, it's another enterprise, but it's subsidizing your primary effort right? Interesting, yeah. As you're kind of getting it off the ground. And so there's absolutely some government subsidizing as we would all like to see it but there's business subsidizing which could be like, oh we have hunters come in and lease the ranch and that's subsidizing the cattle operation. And I think yeah. you have to be, especially as a new ranch, you have to be doing kind of all of those things. But you know the economics on it is actually like pretty straightforward. So if you buy a cow and let's say you buy a, a bred cow, and you bought her, I'm just gonna make the numbers up, but you bought her for $2,000. And then that coming spring, she produces a calf for you that you raise exceptionally well and you sell that calf for $1,000, right? Mm. Now you're into that cow for 1,000, right? Because she earned you 1,000 back. If you took that cow and exposed her to a a quality bowl and you resold her now a, a year older as another bred cow to somebody else, and you sold her for that two thousand dollars you would make a thousand yeah right or you keep that cow in your herd and she continues to produce a calf for you year after year that's what we would call you know that's a good cow and she can do that basically on her own and every year she gets pregnant and every year she produces you a good calf and she does that from you know uh her first you know calf as a heifer all the way through let's call it like in a nine-year-old you're gonna make, I mean, that original investment mm. of $2,000 by year two will be paid off. So you would make $7,000 and then some change probably when you would sell her at the end of that. You know, So it just depends on what your model is, but there's a number of ways, as I was you know, kind of explaining, primarily in ranching, there's two ways that you can increase your profitability. And that is through increasing your, your volume, your total number of cattle, mm-hmm. which generally means you have to increase the acreage that you would run those cattle on. What'd you say is 22 acres of- Yeah, for us it's about just, it's a, yeah, about 22 acres per one cow annually is, is what we're doing here. And we're trying to improve those numbers through good grazing practices to get more volume of forage on the same. So you either have to have more acres or more forage mm. right because that's the only way to increase your number of cattle mm-hmm. or you have to increase what we would call turnover which how quickly can i get you know calves on the ground and those calves sold and shipped out or how quickly can i bring in another age group of cattle and maybe run those for a short period of time mm. but you have to be turning and burning you know it, it, those are the only ways where you can say hey on this particular ranch of this size how do i you know you almost could do the math and say i can run this many cattle they're going to probably average this much at sale time i'm going to have this mm-hmm. much into them and i can do some pretty close projections to kind of what our you know our, our revenues would look like uh now things can come into that that can disrupt it i don't want to hear a bunch of comments of people saying oh you, you know this is like yes there's droughts there's and there's things yeah. and whatever but in a standard year like if you said hey over the last 20 years this is what the weather does. This is the size of the ranch. You've done your planning accurately. You, can, you can't just say like, hey, I've got X amount of acres. I'm going to put 10,000 cows on that. You'll run out of feed. You'll run out of water. You know, there's all these different things that go into that plan. And the goal, obviously, then is to maximize what like that resource can do without abusing that resource. Because for us, like if you were to go in there and abuse that grass resource, you wouldn't get that. That volume, and you would actually you start to have to decrease mm. and destock your numbers, which would negatively affect your revenue. So what we're trying to do is using you know different regenerative ranching and grazing practices is actually improve the soil quality, which increases the volume of forage available, which allows me to put more cattle on the same acres. So I could go from one cow to twenty two acres to one cow to eighteen acres well now I can run more cattle, Mm. right? Because I've got access ground or Mm. or feed and that is gonna positively affect my revenue overall for that enterprise. And we would look at it as like different age classes of cattle or different turnover um, would be like different enterprises within the ranch. And I think that helps us kind of risk mitigate to a certain point because we're not reliant solely as like, we only do this some of those things help offset a little bit. So, Hey, these calves didn't do so well, but these ones, it's like if you own 10 apartments and one of them's vacant because of turnover all the time, if you only own one, that vacancy is going to crush you. But if you own 10, it helps absorb some of those, those gains and losses. And so when we built the ranch and kind of the operations of how we were going to, you know, kind of do business, we try to diversify our enterprises within those cattle mm. markets, if you will. And then what we do is ultimately we, we take those cattle and we'll sell those into those marketed programs that, that I mentioned, or we'll hold back any cattle that we personally are going to go to an independent processor, or have them process for us. And then that is meat that we would basically distribute on our own back into the community. Mm.
0: You have... Um I mean there's obviously a lot of variables that you could do with a cattle operation what is the difference between what we're looking at in your setup which is grass-fed beef prime choice and then what people would i think loosely call factory farming sure because there's a lot of different ways that factory farmers looked at it's like i've seen people call factory farming like they look at a process center and they go that's factory farming that's just a processor those cows actually might be grass fed, yeah. but they're just being processed through the the machine.
1: Sure. So we actually do grass fed, grain finished. So we still finish. I I personally, for our like customer base, I feel like that is what what most people, you know, want. Where we have super high quality, choice, prime, prime plus. The grass fed market, I think, is, is very good and very strong. And there are people who really like that. Um, but there's also a lot of people that eat grass fed, hundred percent grass fed, grass finished. And so for us, it's a, it's a wider demographic customer base being a grass fed grain finished. But what we basically try to do is those cattle will be out on open range for a good portion of their life. Now they have to learn how to come in and feed. Ultimately, they almost kind of have like the, the choice. There's like feed bunks that have the grain that basically is part of that finishing process, but they're also eating natural grasses and things. And I think you're right, when you see like what people would call like farming or the the ranching that I think gets kind of the negative just gets painted with a very negative brush. Ultimately though, is part of the food system that we all like rely on. And finishing yards and these things, I mean, they're they're a key phase and component of the overall process that we all enjoy within, you know, beef production. And so- Is that part of factory farming? Or is that, cause there's, the finishing
0: process is how
1: long? The finishing process is about 200 days. So they could oh, be in a feed, Jesus. yeah, they could be in a feed yard where like they're in the bunk space, they come in and they're going and they're eating that. It's I think, crushing grain. I think people are like, when they think like factory farming too, they think of like these massive like chicken dens and there's yeah. chickens everywhere and hogs and all these things. Beef cattle is a little bit different because they generally need more space to, you know, throughout their like time that they're, they're growing. And I think in beef cattle, you see, you know, some of the, some of the more negative news or the stories or, or basically what like, kind of how they're trying to paint the entire industry, which I don't think is accurate at all, but like these fake meats and these different things have done a really good job marketing. But what they don't tell you is like, there couldn't be more processed, you know- Garbage. Garbage, you couldn't eat worse. And, and it uses more fuel, more water. It actually is worse. It's worse for the environment. They've done endless studies. There's a really great book. It's called, It's Not the Cow, It's the How. And they talk all about how cattle and other you know, ruminoid animals grazing grasses, it, it, it truly, through photosynthesis, pulls carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. That fake meat production is putting, and if you've ever worked with a nutritionist before, They tell you to avoid processed foods, right? Yeah. You couldn't have more highly processed garbage than that. And it's bad for the environment. But they've done a great job marketing that. And all these people are like, oh, these cattle are the the problem. When in actuality, part of the solution is the fact that they're taking something human beings can't eat grass. They're eating it and turning it into high quality protein and that grass is regrowing and pulling carbon out of the atmosphere to do that. That carbon is getting dropped in the soil hmm. and that soil is in is becoming more, you know, that healthy soil with with that carbon in it is what is actually driving like the, you know, it's basically what makes plant life stand up straight and it's literally using it up hmm. versus putting it into the atmosphere. Now when you go and till and do all these different things it can disrupt that soil process. And that's why a lot of the regenerative stuff, there's a whole thing around carbon capture. And if there's ever a way to like basically monetize that, which there probably will be in the future. However, it is proven scientifically that to offset climate change, whether you believe in it or not, there is carbon in the atmosphere. The only way to basically pull that carbon out in large scale is through, plant regrowth, which when you have grasslands that are getting grazed and regrown, it actually is doing that at more volume than even just like a tree that's growing Mm once, Because you can do it over and over. It's like mowing your lawn, right? You cut it, it grows back. You cut it, it grows back. Mm -hmm. We basically are using the cattle as the mowing mechanism. And we're also doing that with like extremely high quality genetics. So we're taking, you know, that, that cow and Utilizing it in a way to, to do all those things I just mentioned. But at the end of the day, you're also getting extremely high quality, nutrient dense protein for human consumption.
0: Yeah. It's so it's uh, very weird because uh, there's a lot of campaigns of mis and disinformation on the whole subject matter, oh. especially when it comes to the environment.
1: I would say it's one of the biggest disinformation that, if you look at all these different disinformation campaigns, I think Fake Meats has done one of the best jobs of disinforming people and making them think that they're eating something healthy that's better for the environment. And they've done a fantastic job of painting the cattle industry in a way that just isn't accurate. And anybody that wants to learn more about this, this isn't me, you know, making this up. I'm a firm believer in it. But that book that I mentioned, it's not the cow, it's the how is extremely informative about the food system in America and also basically debunking all the disinformation that's out there that has just been flooded with huge dollar amounts behind them and it's all lies. Mm. And what it's actually doing is giving you a less healthy product that's hurting the environment and they're telling you it's the opposite. Where in actuality, cattle, when utilized and grazed using certain techniques, can have huge positive impact on the soil, on the environment, and who's better stewards of that than farmers and ranchers whose whole livelihoods rely on the resource that that grass is. If you just overdid it and used all your grass and overgrazed all of it, you're not gonna have any grass next year and you're gonna be out of business in no time. So those people have been great stewards of the land for you know hundreds of years and continued these ranches through generations, which would have never happened if they didn't take care of it. Mm. And they didn't take care of those animals. And I think that misconception is, again, it's a disinformation campaign that has really done a great job convincing people of their bullshit.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's like the fat-free campaigns where everything was fat-free and you use and all this garbage, even the fake sugars. and and thinking it doesn't have an adverse effect, it has more of an adverse effect. Like you could be a vegan and morbidly obese because you're eating everything that's got vegetable oil and thinking that's gonna be a healthy solution. And natural whole foods has been proven to be the best balance of a diet because it's natural and whole. It's And has like the
1: nutritional requirements slash like nutritional density needed to not have to like supplement with outside things and like it or not, beef provides some of, like, the most, like, nutrient-dense, highest-quality protein that you can get. And I think within a balanced diet, you can talk to any nutritionist and whether you're, you know, whatever your activity is. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, when we started doing this, it was, it was, you know, we're really active, you know, kind of mountain people. And we do all sorts of activities outside the ranch. And you know, you know how it is. Like, if you eat good, that's half the battle of any nutritional fitness program. And and providing that like high quality protein so people can go out there and live healthy and you know do all the things that we like to do is a big driving factor for us as far as producing beef for our communities.
0: So I don't. I mean, this is my pitch to you guys. I mean, my family, which is me and my kids, as a, as a. Uh, Single father, about 60% of my meat or protein comes from food that I source from hunting. Yep. Elk, deer, different species of deer, a fowl. I'll do fowl this year. Chicken eggs for my chickens, goat milk for my goats. And then I'm using Little Belt Cattle Co., Colorado Craft, and Ballerina. Which
1: he's a super good guy. Yeah, he's, he's next He's a on the super list. good guy.
0: Yeah. Um, and then Ballerina Farms, which yep. is my local guys, because that meat subsidy and having a personal relationship with the people who tend that meat source and understanding its complexity, but it's very simple to understand, is like, I want to know what I'm putting in my kids' bodies, from, that, it, that it existed on the earth, was healthy, eating grass from Montana, and then it's on my plate. and. That's easy to attain for most people, but most people want the convenience. Sure. If you live in an apartment complex or a condo and you think it's outside of the norm, you can literally go on your website.
1: Yeah. Or if you're in Montana, um, we've got different things where our our products are in and and that's getting bigger. But like I joke, because I'm a big hunter myself and, you know, we eat a lot of a lot of elk and different game and stuff. and, And this hasn't replaced that for us but there is times where like a big juicy beef steak is pretty darn good. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) But we, I was joking and I was saying, you know, we want to be the cattle company for everybody with tag soup. So Mm -hmm. if you come to Montana and you're like, Hey, I've got this archery tag and oh man, I'm going home with nothing. You can still go home with some high quality protein from people that you can look at all our stuff and feel like you, you, like you said, you know, where you have some connection to your food. And Mm. that's why I think right when you go and pull an elk steak out of the freezer, from an elk that you killed you remember who you were with and you remember exactly what happened in the pack out and all these things and there's a connection to that animal i'm not saying everybody would have that same connection but you would have a connection to us and we have that connection to these animals that ultimately are in our care and we do everything possible you know there's a number of things we do to to make sure that those you know kind of quality points are being met and we also care deeply for these animals and I think that's another misconception about farming and ranching is that ultimately because it's going into you know food production that for some reason the the people involved in these industries don't care where in actuality they care like deeply deeply about it and you know I think people are getting back to wanting to have some sort of connection like they used to where oh I go to the local market and I get the eggs from, from this person I get Mike gets has the milk and Greg's got this And i think that's a neat thing and it's definitely happening here in montana where people see all these ranches and stuff and and different things and they they want to know more about it and Mm -hmm. one thing we've tried to do is be very transparent about what we do and why we do it and we really don't think we know anything um we're just trying our best to you know as we learn and build and grow but if somebody has a question of like oh why do you do that or like what's the thought there I mean we're happy to talk about it and like I love these conversations because I think it's really helpful for consumers to get to you know kind of learn more about the industry and really learn more about what it takes to put good quality healthy food on your plate for your family and also have resources that you could reach out to and say hey I had a question about this and have people that are open and honest about what they're doing and give you an answer
0: What's the, uh, the detriment of the current existence of ranches and farming from your experience thus far? Like, where does things start falling apart? I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of errors that you see, but if you see the trends of recession, food shortage supplies, mm-hmm. you know, my buddy Tim Kennedy sent me some things the other day of all the records of all the chicken fires and all these animals getting decimated where do things start getting slippery
1: well i mean i think you start seeing it on production agriculture side just the inputs of doing business i mean i know everybody feels it when they go to fill up their vehicle to get back and forth to work or or whatnot are you but you know when you have farmers and ranchers that rely on on fuel to basically put and process you know to, to actually harvest food i mean just those inputs alone when that stuff starts going up the inputs to harvest those products don't always stay on track and even like this winter i mean our feed prices to continue to feed cattle went up almost 40 percent and you're the,
0: eating that cost not the pretty government. much yeah. I mean,
1: because and there's some um you 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 see some rises but even those rises that you're seeing right now at the supermarket those are not because producers are get, making all this money and But when you start getting into those fuel costs, when you start getting into droughts, when you start getting into farmers not producing as much feed, not only for human consumption, but animal consumption as well, it's a slippery slope in that, how does that process, how does that system that we all rely on stay running? And where I think it really becomes a slippery slope is that you have farmers and ranchers that can't afford to have a bad year they're they're on the cusp the, the margins are yeah. are they are like just trying to get to the next year and you you add drought into that you add bad luck into that you add some bad management decisions into that and all of a sudden you're right there and you can't afford to put diesel in your tractor you can't afford to buy that feed you don't have great options it's destock, which is basically you're, you're, you're saying, I'm not gonna have the volume, so my revenue is gonna be negatively impacted. And then they, those cattle have to be replaced at some point. Or if it gets really bad, the main asset that you're holding is the land, which for some of these folks has been, you know, they're multi-multi-generational tons, a lot of family history and pride. And it's really sad that it gets down to the point where like they almost have to sell because, they just can't keep up with the input costs and they might they probably don't have the ability just to go oh i'll go buy my neighbor's place or this or that because as those kind of negative economical impacts continue to happen just like any business you're not going to be able to scale and grow and i think that's where it gets tricky and then where it really gets tricky is if those ranches come out of production agriculture acres and they go, whether it's into recreation or somebody just buys it, you know, but isn't gonna use it, you know, as those acres leave the system, where do they get replaced? So down the road, as we're trying to put these, these tracts of land back together for production agriculture usage and and continue to supply America with high quality protein from beef cattle. If those acres are leaving the system,
0: which they are, which they they are exponentially,
1: how are they coming back? And then at what point is there just, again, when do you say, I don't have enough acreage to meet the volume I need to be profitable? And then why would you do that as your business?
0: Yeah. If you inherited a fifth generation cattle operation or ranch and you can't make ends meet to feed your family and you're sitting on a hundred million dollar (laughs) property, potentially. Yeah. It's like, what's the incentive there? Yep. Yep. And And if somebody comes
1: in and buys that acreage and then goes, oh, I'm not going to run any cattle, I just, you know, I'm going to come out and and hunt once a year or something, which, okay, that's fine. But I think what people are, are starting to see, and I hope they are, is that when those production agriculture acres leave the system, it's very hard for them to come back in. And as these ranches become, like, fractalized and smaller and smaller and you lose these large tracts of grazing lands because those animals are are systematically moved through that to where it's they're meeting, you know, the highest quality of, like, nutritional value that they need as well as developing that resource for future use.
0: Yeah, keeping it healthy. Correct. What what does it look like when it falls apart, though? What What is, where are we getting to? Does it just continue to... Cause if you see the numbers, I I saw a scale last night. It was like, it's getting lower and lower and lower. I
1: I think you have less and less people that want to do this type of work. Um, It's no different than trades. It's no different than, you know, like I love like that, Mike Rowe, like the dirty jobs and like his whole message of these are like really, these are good jobs, but they're dirty jobs, right? And it's kind of similar to the military, right? Like, like you can't blame the (laughs) trash man Um, you can't complain when the trash man smells like trash, right? Like somebody's got to take out the trash. And there's fewer and fewer people that actually want to do these types of jobs out there than there were. And I think the real slippery slope is then as those production agriculture acres go away, the number of people wanting to do this go away, but the human population continues to go up and the demand for like that product continues to go up. Well, where does it come from? And that's where we're at. Is like we want to say, hey, it's coming from us, and we saw that kind of as a problem. And I think any business, right? If you can identify a problem and find a viable solution, you're probably going to have a pretty decent business. And we were just looking at kind of the those exact trends. And people say, like, why would you ever want to do that? Or more people told me that this was a bad idea than they did when I said I was going to be a seal. And they said, well, you're five seven, you weigh 160 pounds, and you're of average at best athletic ability, you'll never make it. You're not 6'4", 220 gold medalist. And I was like, all right, we'll see. And, you know, just, just, I, I think we're at this kind of slippery slope point where people have already seen what can happen when that system gets disrupted. And it was pretty easily disrupted by COVID. And so as, you know, those things continue to happen, I think there could be some seriously negative effects or you see these like food shortages and these different things. And back to kind of that national security footprint, I think it's important where you control that and nobody can, you can sustain a lot independently, Mm -hmm. which America geographically is like one of the most blessed countries for like what it's able, what it has, where we can almost self-sustain where a lot of countries cannot. Um, And that's from like an energy perspective, a food perspective, all these things that truly made America like what it is today. But we have to keep that in mind. And we have to also continue to feed these industries with people, with good people. And we have to also, you know, help, you know, the the multi-generational people be able to continue to pass those down or at least bring in You know if they're not going to run them anymore you know potential management and that's where i think the veteran community could actually offer a huge influx of really good people into this space that really could could do a lot of good in potentially being a succession plan for somebody and and in my opinion you know not all of them but like there's some really good veterans out there that have fought and earned an opportunity to do something post-military and i could see this industry being a really good fit for that. And it's also an industry that really needs good people, like a lot of them. And, you know, it's something that we've kind of worked at with trying to do our best job of, of saying like, hey, if we can do it, you can do it. And also trying to kind of extend the table to other veterans and help them get a start to at least, uh, you know, my goal with it would be they either say, I never want to do this again, which I'd rather hear them say that than go to college for four years to then go work at a ranch and determine it's not for them and waste all that time and money or say, hey, this is really great. I'm going to go get this degree. I'm going to go get this job. I'm going to go do this or that within that space. And it's been important to us and it's important to us. We, you know, our goal as a company and as it grows is to continue to give veterans opportunities and hopefully hire more veterans in the future. And we've done that you know, within the other companies that I've been part of as well with Tim, and you know, I think it's one of those things that when you see those right fits, or and other people are are having success in those, you you want to share that, and you mm-hmm. want to share the fact that like, hey, there could be some great opportunities here.
0: I just wish there was. A, I've looked into it when I got out of the military, of looking for ways to finance my own little farming or sure. ranching opportunity. There's not many. No, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, it's really hard, and the government makes it hard. I just feel like I wouldn't say all veterans because all veterans, a lot of veterans suck. Sure. But there's a lot of good soft veterans out there that I think, if given the opportunity financially to do something like that, would put their nose to the grindstone and do really well and excel, kind of like you've had an opportunity here, and it seems like it's in good hands. But we need more of that because the obvious argument here is if we don't do it, then who's who's going to do it? And if we're not paying attention to it, then what are we doing? We're just going to let it hit tracer burnout, and then we're not going to have any of the supplies at all. Yeah, we'll, we'll be eating those damn Beyond Burgers, which it, are disgusting. Yeah, I won't be. <laughs> yeah, I won't We'll keep be hunting, either. you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I but I think even looking at like some of these ranches and stuff, where you know maybe there's not a great family secession plan, and and maybe there's an opportunity there where you go, well, how do you start? How do you fund something where the barrier of entry, part of it is the the capital investment to start something it is, you know, if one, of, if one of these places wasn't in your family, it's hard to to do that. But I actually could see, it, it wouldn't surprise me if in the future for the right person, where you, you almost work a succession plan with somebody who goes, hey, I'm at a point of retirement, I don't have somebody that this is going to go to, and you know, I could see where potentially like, you know, a veteran who is, is interested in learning does like a turnover over a certain amount of time with that person learns the ropes and then also incrementally buys them out as they go. So yeah. it's kind of a win-win. It's it equity. Correct. You know, where you're almost providing a, like a retirement and, and that's a little bit like, again, but I could see where, I could see that happening.
0: Um, that's my plan, business yeah. partners.
1: But, yeah but that's the the face of ranching is changing and that where you used to have the owner operator model you know that gets passed down generation to generation is is shifting i would say to more there's a lot more of i would just call it like whether it's an investment approach or a business approach where you have a, a an owner who necessarily isn't the operator and it provides a great opportunity for somebody to come in and run that business yeah and then they need good talented people that can not only run a business, can run a team, can manage the day-to-day, can manage the livestock, and and those, I mean, there's, Montana State University has a degree called Ranching Systems that basically was funded by people that were tired of having bad managers. And one of their pushes is trying to get more veterans kind of within that where they can learn those skill sets and you could come work for the owner as the operator. And maybe there's partnership opportunities or something there as you build and develop that and that again would keep these places in agriculture acres and also provide some amazing jobs in great places you know to good people but you also have to be like forward leaning on the learning process and getting yourself to a skill set to where you're able to do that for them at a high level but a lot of these people now they don't want you know you got to be able to do Just like as you progress in the military, I mean, you got to be able to do an Excel spreadsheet and you got to be able to put the gear on and jump out of the plane with the boys, you know, and you got to do everything in between. And that's similar to this as you get to like higher levels of management within, you know, ranching and agriculture. And we talk a lot about this with partners of ours. You know, there's some really good people out there, but generally they're working at some (laughs) place and they're not letting them go and i i also think there's a lot of blue sky within this space to be those really good people for some of these outfits that you know whether they have a lot of turnover or they need really strong leaders to come in you can learn these skills just like you can learn any other skill but you can also use that military experience to add some structure to some of those things and also provide that like business acumen that it takes to be successful You know and and develop the skills that you need to be successful actually like working livestock
0: i got i I have laborers who make t-shirts for me that have bachelor's degrees yeah i mean who get paid really damn well yeah and you're like those days of like getting guys where you're like oh i'm just gonna work on the ranch for 10 years and it's it's a pipe dream and you know it's also like we talked about it before if partners were Financiers or the people who are buying the, the land want operators. It's like operators who did it for real operating in the military. Yep. And then they want to run this space, this business, this land. You, you need to get good people and be willing to invest in them. Yep. And I, I think all of this is my homework for my own setup because I, I want to do it. And I want my family, especially my kids, to be raised. I mean, they're raised, you know, my. my baby girl is feeding goats at one years old. Sure. She was on a horse when she was two, Uh, but I want them to grow up in that family business. But me and you are very far detached from the finance and the capital that would be required to own a place like this. But if our entry point is operations, because we're willing to put in the hard work and get interest and equity and partnership along the way, that's a damn good incentive. And Absolutely. that's a good life. That's a good, and life, it's a
1: good partnership because oftentimes, you know, whether
0: they, those guys didn't become billionaires because they work in cattle or like
1: investors or whatever, yeah. like, you know, whatever the case may be. But you're providing them like a high amount of of, you know, you're running that business for them as a partner. Yeah, you know, is 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 ultimately the goal. And like as a partner, a little about cattle company, you know, for me, it's a great thing because You know, you get to, you're directly involved, and everybody needs each other, right? So it's a good part. Symbiotic, yeah, for sure. And and it's one of those things where your kids can still get full value of all the lessons that I think are like, in like again, like caring for other things, having sympathy and empathy, and also having things not go your way. I mean, my kids had bottle-fed calves for you know that they had named and it died. Mm. Not that like that's the hope, but it happens, right? But it's a life lesson that they're learning and they're learning that like not everything's gonna go your way. They're learning how to work hard. Um, I think if you can teach your kids how to work hard, they can take that into any direction they want, right? This is a space that if they learn these skills, they could stay in that space or they could take those lessons learned and go be awesome in some other area, right? But they're never gonna look back and go like, oh, I'm really upset I learned how to work hard. And I think a lot of people today don't want to work hard. Everybody wants the ranch, but they don't have what it takes. To I, had a, somebody, I offered a job to somebody in, a, in a, one of our other businesses that's related to the ranch and the guy told me, well, when you get all that up and running and it's successful and it, and it works, um, I'll come in and run it for you then, but I'm not going to come in and, and flip burgers. And I said, well, I flip the burgers and I'm the president of the company. And he says, yeah, well, I'm probably, I'm a little bit above that. And when you get it, so I said, let me get this straight. When I get the whole thing set up and it's operational and successful, that's when you're going to come and run it. And he says, yeah. And I said, well, you're not going to have an opportunity because if you won't come in and flip burgers, I wouldn't let you be the CEO. And of course. the CEO should have no problem going down. 100%. And flipping burgers, shoveling out the trailer, whatever. Cleaning shitters, whatever right? it takes. It, whatever it takes. And you shouldn't have anything that you wouldn't do that you wouldn't ask somebody, like if you ask somebody else to do it, just like the military, you got to be prepared to do it yourself. And I think just these type of jobs demand that type of leadership. And it's very much the same where you might not have to be like the best shooter in the group. But if you're leading the boys, like you still got to be competitive. Yeah. You still got to put the gear on and and go out and do the job. But you got to do all the other things as well. And I think veterans, a good portion of veterans understand that. And I think people that are interested in this space, number one, it's 100% learnable stuff, right? There's an experience gap, but you just gotta like get going. There's plenty of good programs out there. There's college, there's all sorts of ways to, to gain that experience. But one thing that you bring to the table is that leadership, is that experience, is the ability to like run and manage you know, the logistics and operations of something. And as you continue to build and grow that skill set you become extremely valuable because a lot of people might have the other skill set but not the management side of the house and there's a lot of people now with that shifting ownership demographic moving away from your family owned and operated to investment group or high net worth individual or partnerships hmm. coming in um i mean you can look at all these people i mean there's plenty of them that you know, are out buying those types of places. And right now with the way the economy is, hard assets is a pretty great investment, but once you have it, now what? Mm. And that's where I think, you know, once you gain some experience and you can fill that role and answer that question and turn these things into like really great businesses that also support the food system in America. And, And that's not just for veterans, that's for anybody that wants to get started within this space like we were talking about before, you have to have, and I've talked about this before, the, you know, kind of the new guy attitude of, hey, I'm brand new. That doesn't mean I'm not capable. That means I just don't have the experience yet, but I wanna learn it. And if you show up and work hard, you're honest, and you ask for help, and you improve your skill set, you'd be amazed how many people are out there to help you. But if you show up with like a huge ego, you think you know everything, and, you tell everybody how great you are, and then you're not, you're probably gonna have a hard time. Mm. You know, but I think there's a tremendous amount of-
0: You just described a Navy SEAL.
1: Well, you I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a few of them out there that, uh, you know, Navy SEALs are, aren't always known for their humility. You know? <laughs> their good hair, yes, but their humility, no. Um, You know, but it's just an interesting space just because I think, again, it meets the same positive or the same requirements that a lot of veterans are, like, looking for in their next thing. There's a lot of that within a space that also really needs good people into it. Yeah. And because eventually it's just going to cycle out. So, like, back to that tipping point, like, at some point, if you don't have new people coming in, like, where are those people going to... Where's where's that sustainability come from Hmm. on the human side? Um, And that's something we've been trying to do is just... Kind of talk about the fact that we are brand new to this as a first generation ranch we hope to be a multi-generation ranch um is our goal uh we hope that if our kids want to continue to do this that they have the opportunity and if they don't they take the lessons learned and they go out in the world and do great things and we just continue to build and grow and scale and see where we can take this thing
0: i feel like there should be a stipulation for the kids and first generation cattle ranching, like three generations, you'll be locked into a contract. You can't do anything else. That's right. <laughs> to provide support for the Americans. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like when we're talking about this, I feel sad because twenty percent. You know, it's a twenty eighty rule. Yep. You know, I feel like twenty percent of the country, which includes good ranchers, good farmers, good people, are carrying the weight of the eight other eighty percent. Oh yeah. And when you look out, when I look out into, it's not a millennial thing, it's just people thing. Americans are getting complacent, they're getting lazy, and they're used to being fat and happy. And we're in a situation where if the 20% of good people don't stand up, maintain these, the integrity of their jobs, of their ranching uh, establishments, their farming, um, we're just gonna fall apart as a nation. So. I mean, it's like, it's very easy to see how these core foundational and fundamental businesses are literally the fabric that is holding this shit together. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's disappointing, but it's also like the reality. And, you know, you, you look at, you know, these major metropolitan areas where all these kids are reaching off the system, mm-hmm. which includes the government, but it's the taxpayers dollars as you're out here ranching America's food. And uh, it's just a sad state of affairs because you know, we're not raising babies to get motivated about come out, coming out here and running cattle and, and maintaining the integrity of the nation. Mm-hmm. We're raising them to be little leeches and, and, and think that they could outsource all their independence, including their security, their financial stability, all to the government, because they'll get the check in the mail. Mm-hmm. And so you got like a very dense socialist community of people that are getting used to that. And then in the outskirts, the 20%ers are out there busting their ass, living a lifestyle of independence, which is the, the best attribute of it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad to see. What do you think? How do you think it all unfolds, kind of closing out the podcast?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think one thing I love about this community um, of people, is that they're extremely resilient? Um, they've all been through harder times, droughts, the ups and downs. I mean, you could look at you know from the 70s to the 80s, and these families who have like really buckled. You know, they've they're resilient and they're positive. They're, I, you've never met a group of people that you know. It might be it might not have rained in months, and I think it's gonna rain tonight. Yeah, you know, and you almost have to have that positive outlook on where. But I. I I think that there is this huge demographic of well of like, well, somebody else is going to do it for me. Mm. Right. And similar to, to the military. And you know, there's that old, like send me or whatever, like a lot of people, I think that we're used to working with and dealing. you know, you get spoiled by those people because they're the ones that go, Oh, I'll go do that. You know? And a lot of people go, well, if they're doing
0: it, I'm not doing it
1: where I, I hope, And I'm positive that as multi-generational family owned and operated traditional, you know, farms and ranches are, have those kids that come back and continue to do it, that people appreciate that. And that, you know, at some point, you know, they're able to find success within those businesses. I hope that they welcome new people in and help them as well, because, you know, without Our partnership and with the the mentors and partners that have helped me, if they didn't provide me the ability to call them up and ask a quick question or the, you know, just the the help me get that experience in a shorter time period, we wouldn't be anywhere. And I feel like as part of that partnership, we return the favor because there's things that that I have experienced in that they maybe don't and. They'll call me and say, Oh, Hey, I'm dealing with this, whatever personnel issue or something. What would you guys do about that? Oh, I do this. Oh, okay, cool. So I think at some point though, the country is going to have to wake up and start to focus on the things that are truly important. And for a long time, I think there's been a lot of distractions that have gotten somehow they've become the, the focus. Mm. And I, I think. People need to wake up from not only like a security perspective where, you know, everybody likes to think in America that there's no bad guys out there, right? the Mm -hmm. the the bad guys are somewhere else and that complacency will get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. And the thought of like, somebody else is going to do the dirty work when it, when it needs done is not everybody's cut out for that. And I get it, but that feeling of like, eh, it's okay if, not not okay for my kids but perfectly okay for your kids mm-hmm. and i think even politically i mean you start to see this shift away from you know i love seeing the guys that have have served in the military or done different things have been successful in business go into those areas but the attitude of like well i'll send your kids or i'll send you but not for me i think people have kind of lost that where there was a time in american history you know, you come back from World War II, you were the guys starting businesses. You, these veterans were staples in their communities. These were not- Politicians. Yeah, you know, these people were victims. These were people that came back, you know, after years and they just, they used those experiences to do great things. And I think everybody, right? Like you and I could have sat here for the entire time and we could have talked about negative experiences, losing friends, you know all sorts of stuff and depressed everybody and ourselves, and we could have said, "Well, because of all that, you know, I'm not do- I'm not doing shit. I'm gonna sit here and I'm not doing nothing." Or you can say, "Hey, I'm gonna use all those experiences, maybe that those guys don't get anymore." Or you take those things and you go, "Hey, I'm using this as like the thing that's pushing me forward and the thing that's like the." So I think it's just kind of how you look at it, and I'd say within this space. I'm choosing to look at it with like that kind of positive, you could look at all, the, demogra- all the, you know, the things right now and say like this is at some point going to be like this food system will potentially over how long it takes but could be a failing system. I'm hoping that people are starting to look at this thing and see it more as an opportunity that they could go into just because they didn't start in it doesn't mean that they can't end up in it. And if it's something that, you just like you know you want to be a green beret or a seal or something you know you set that goal and you do what it takes the pre-steps to be successful you can get into it mm. and we did that and if we could do it anybody could do it and i think that there's going to be some really great input like influxes of folks within this space that are good because it is a critical thing that kind of like the military has to happen and you can put your head in the sand and say, "No, it'll, the grocery store is always going to have food, and there'll be baby formula tomorrow, don't worry. But there might not be. And if people don't start taking an active role, you know, kind of in this country and start focusing on what matters and focusing less on the fringe distractions, I think this country's going to continue to see some hard times.
0: I mean, you don't have antifa protest out here in
1: the of the- we uh we haven't yet but <laughs> i don't luckily i don't know if they know how to find us yet you know yeah
0: so they come out here in horses that yeah way. right they um might- uh tell people about uh little belt cattle co and where they can find all, all the stuff that you guys do
1: so it was actually kind of funny um when i did andy's podcast like my wife at the end who does all of our like marketing and everything she's like You didn't even mention the name of the business until like hour, two and a half. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, you're totally right. So this, you know, um, I'll try to do a better pitch this time. So little belt cattle company, you can find us at littlebeltcattleco.com online. Um, you can learn more about who we are, what we're doing, our backgrounds. Again, we're, we're trying to produce high quality beef in Montana for America and we're living the American dream. I mean, we got to go, and reap some of the benefits now of this great country and this still is the greatest country on earth and you talk to people that have lived in other places or visit other places go if you don't think america's great go live somewhere else mm-hmm. and then see how quickly you want to come back mm-hmm. and we're getting that opportunity to do what people did you know over 100 years ago and starting something and, and you're doing the same right you're mm-hmm. starting your kind of your legacy of of what you're leaving behind, you know, not just from your service, but also now as a business person. Um, so Little Belt Cattle Co. has more information about that. Um, if you wanna see what we're doing, you can find us on Instagram. That's probably the best one. We try to give people like a daily look at what our lives look like. We try to be honest about it. Um, it's not always perfect. We screw up plenty. You'll see pictures of like, you know, side by side in the in the pond or in the creek and all the kids like way to go, dad, you know, and then you'll see pictures of us looking extra cool.